Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. A prophecy is a powerful thing in storytelling. We can look at the biggest movie franchises of our era, and most of these stories revolve around this idea of a prophecy. In Harry Potter, there's a prophecy only one can live while the other survives. In Star Wars, there's the one who will come and bring balance to the force. Even in the Marvel movie franchise, when you look at Infinity War, it boils down to Doctor Strange seeing a billion futures and saying there's only one future, we win this war. And they're all forms of prophecies, and they're so powerful because a prophecy tells the audience what's at stake. Why does all this matter? How does this hero's decisions play into the grander scheme of this movie you're watching, of the universe as it is? And Jesus isn't copying Star Wars. Hate to to drop that one. Jesus is not copying Harry Potter. But all the great stories that you've ever heard are all pulling at elements of God's story and Jesus' story. Because it's a story that's written on our hearts. No matter how much we try to deny it, we're both attracted and repulsed to it. That's the story we long for, deep redemption. And in the most painful chapter of God's story, it's the prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus that remind us why there's a bloody cross at all. Remind us what are we doing here on the darkest day in human history. And there's a series of four prophecies fulfilled here that teach us and prove to us that Jesus is God. And it reminds us what's at stake on the cross isn't Jesus dying for his criminal behavior. He has none. It isn't Jesus dying for his sins. He has none. It's Jesus dying for our sins. And these prophecies help us make certain this is the Savior that we've all been waiting for that all the Old Testament has been moving towards. And then we see Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world because he fulfills these prophecies and, and really hundreds more, but four specific ones here, that if Jesus keeps these bloody promises then, then we can trust Jesus' promises now. See, Jesus is building a trust with his people that you can believe that I will do it and have done it on the cross in order that you can trust him now and forevermore. And it picks up right here in verse 23. This is the first prophecy of dividing garments and casting lots. Verse 23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And John then quotes Psalm 22 so that we won't miss that there's this prophecy being fulfilled in this odd scene of three dying men. And the soldier's like, well, they're hung up high, so we're just going to bend down. We're going to rip off all their clothes. They're literally just three naked, bleeding out men, and they're starting to swap who gets what. And apparently Jesus' tunic was nice enough that we best not rip it. So let's throw some dice. Psalm 22 says this, They divided my garments among them, 
And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's like little ancient die. And this psalm was written by King David 1,000 years before Jesus would live on earth. King David was prophesying about a king, a savior who would be like him, who would be hunted and attacked as Jesus finds himself. And an atheist might look at all these prophecies and say, hey, Jesus knows the Old Testament. He's just manipulating things, getting everyone to play their role so it looks this way. But I have news for you. Jesus is on a cross, beaten to a pulp. He is not teaching all the Roman guards the Hebrew scriptures and the roles they're supposed to play today. Nor is he pulling them like marionettes to make sure they fulfill things and prophecies they had no idea about. These prophecies are coming true through these rough, non-Jewish executioners of the Roman government, unbeknownst to them. They're just looking for tunics. But we get to see our Savior clearly. This is the one God has told us about. He's here. So Jesus is stripped naked for us, and the second prophecy revolves around thirst. Look at verse 28. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, and he said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. They weren't hung super high. They didn't want to waste all the wood, but they were hung high enough that you couldn't reach his mouth with your hand. You'd need a branch. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And Jesus intentionally knows what's happening to him, what's happening right here. And he quotes another Psalm of David with the eye thirst. It's Psalm 69. And he's bringing out this passage so that we can receive what's happening on the cross and that Jesus knows this is happening. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught off by surprise. This is Jesus choosing the cross for you and I. Psalm 69 says this, You know of my shame. The shame of being naked in front of hundreds on a hill, bleeding out and panting. Scorn and disgrace of being beaten and spit upon. They didn't want them too high so that you could look dead men, men dying in the eyes, and you could be spat on. It would be common to curse them, to make sure you got your shots in, not just the guards. And disgrace. You see that all my enemies are doing Their insults have broken my heart. Notice Jesus isn't mad, but his heart is broken because he created all these soldiers and all the people watching and all of you too. I am in despair. If only one person would show some pity. If only one person would turn and comfort me. Jesus quotes this, that we would read the psalm and realize we're no better than the soldiers. We'd divide the tunic too. We're no better than the Jewish leaders. We would be offended and not know what to do with Jesus either. We're no better than Pontius Pilate who's in vain washing his hands, acting like maybe I can make this go away. We're no better than any of these people. Scripture says not one person would turn to comfort this Jesus. But instead they gave me gall poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. 
Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy and helping us know and feel his agony in this psalm. It's his message to you who follow Christ to say, read these psalms with me at the center. I'm the one in agony for you. And the sponge is placed on the end of a hyssop branch, which is significant in its own right. Because this isn't the first time they've mentioned this common Middle Eastern, North African plant. Most notably in Exodus 12, God instructed the Jewish people on the night of the Passover to kill a lamb, drain its blood, take a hyssop branch in Exodus 12, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood of this lamb in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both the sides of your doorframe None of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. God gave that promise to the Jewish people that if they by faith killed a lamb, took the blood, rubbed it over their doorframe, then the angel of the Lord would pass over them and not kill their firstborn as a plague against all of Egypt. So here we are with the hyssop again, pointing to the blood that saves sinners. This is Jesus being wiped on the great doorframe of this world, a cross for you and I. And just like then, it's pointing to the saving blood. The third prophecy concerns Jesus' body having broken no bones, even though he is tortured and crucified. Look with me at verse 32. It says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who'd been crucified with them. They have a hammer or a mallet. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. He did not break his legs. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Quoting there, Psalm 34. You often died from crucifixion, not from the nails but from asphyxiation or not being able to get your breath. So you were hung with two fairly skinny nails and spread wide. One in one wrist area and one in the other. And then only a single nail through the bottom of your feet. The goal is that you would hang there And the weight of your body would pull you down so you couldn't take a full breath as you'd have to lift yourself up by pushing pressure on these wrists to pull up to breathe. Over time and being beaten beforehand, you would be so weakened and exhausting, rubbing your back for leverage against the wood to try to gasp for breath, that slowly and surely you would exhaust until death. It is truly one of the most horrible ideas of how someone could die. But the soldiers would routinely get bored. Or in this case, the Jewish leaders wanted the dead bodies down before Passover. So the guards would just come by and swing a hammer and crush their knees, break their shin bones or something of the like. And you'd lose all leverage, even pushing against the nail in your feet. You would collapse and very quickly run out of breath and exhaust and die. We see humans are impatient even when killing other humans. 
When they got to Jesus, he had already died, so they don't break his bones with a hammer, just as Psalm 34 prophesied this Savior would somehow die a gruesome death, but yet his bones would not be broken. And while Jesus was dead, the soldiers want to be sure. Their job is not to be mercy, merciful people. They're instead mercenaries, professional executioners pulled from around the Roman Empire to do their job. So a soldier grabs a spear and just jams it into Jesus' side to make sure he's good and dead and they won't get in trouble. Verse 34 is the final fourth prophecy. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And this scripture is actually not a psalm. It comes from the 12th chapter in a little-known book of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. It was written 500 years earlier, and it was written about one day a priest king would come, and this special man would deliver God's people from the Babylonian exile. He'd bring them back from modern-day Iraq to Israel, but it also looked forward in prophecy to one day when all the captives of God would be brought back to God. And in the 12th chapter of Zechariah, it gets very specific. The language gets very detailed. Look with me at verse 10. It says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David. David's been dead for 500 years at this point, but because of David's life and the prophecies around David, we knew that from the line of David would come this one day Messiah born in Bethlehem, the hometown of David. On the people of Jerusalem, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. And I love the focus here because there's so much on divine deliverance and God's big work, and that is true. But this fourth prophecy makes a shift to people that this is God's plan to give you grace you prayer to connect with people, to connect with David's people, Jerusalem's people, that one day we will all look upon the only son and that people will mourn and weep for this son, the son of God himself, the only son of God, the father. See, church, if we fail to connect Christmas to Easter, we'll miss the gospel in both events. We must realize that an actual baby boy, Mary's baby boy, died that day. Who had a name and was born in Bethlehem, a refugee to Egypt, came back and lived in obscure Nazareth in a ministry that didn't start till he was 30. Likely his earthly stepdad died along the way and he was the provider for his household along with his mom, raising a plethora of brothers and sisters, aka he lived an immensely perfect and normal life for the ancient world. 
He was a baby who was carried with hope and fear and confusion and faith for nine months inside Mary and born in a stable. He was the baby sung about by angels, the baby visited by shepherds, the child giving gifts by these foreign magi who appear out of nowhere following a star and giving gifts to a baby that's fit for a king. He was declared by Simeon and Anna in the temple, people he'd never met, parents had never met him, just bursting out in the temple when he was dedicated, saying, oh my goodness, the Savior is here. He was testified by John the Baptist when John the Baptist and him were in the womb. In the Gospel of Luke, it's amazing. They meet each other and the babies are jumping for joy. John the Baptist in his life, Jesus' cousin through family, would declare him first to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist would pay with his head for that declaration. A short time later, Jesus has always been God, but for us, Jesus truly, truly became a man. A fully man, or he can't die for us. And 33 years of loving people and teaching the truth of God, giving the grace of God, highlighted by miraculous healing and power, all came down to a brutal, bloody Friday. But Jesus kept his promises in the end. On Passover, Jesus became that lamb. Some people call the Old Testament the book of promises made. In the New Testament, the book of promises kept. And Jesus kept all of his promises, not reluctantly, but willingly for you, church. His bloody promises are fulfilled for you. And you might ask, why is John telling us all this? In these four specific prophecies, John clarifies his own writing for us. He tells you why this matters. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. That's John the writer. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. The point of the prophecies fulfilled, just like in those big movies, is that we get the scale of what's happening. The Romans crucified tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people over their long, bloody reign on crosses. But only this man is the one who will come back from the dead and said he was God. That's why it matters that we are to believe in this Jesus who fulfills all the promises. And if he keeps these promises, and he did, then we can trust the promises he's given us now. And in this passage, Jesus gives us two promises. This is where we go, church. This is what we apply. This is what we believe. And Jesus makes one promise with his words, and he makes another promise with his actions. And the first promise is that the work of salvation is finished with Jesus's death. Jesus wants us to explicitly know this about the cross. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When you die, when I die, we may have a clumsy ending. 
We may say things we don't mean. We may, may just be shouting different stuff. I don't know what I'll say when I die. Hopefully it's eloquent. But Jesus doesn't mess up the last words. In Greek, it's only one word. Tetelestai. And it means it is finished. It is fulfilled. It comes from the word telos, that it is the absolute end. It's in the perfect tense, which means it happened once and is impacting forevermore and will never, ever happen again. When he says to teleestai, Jesus is telling us that it is finished in reference to the work of salvation. That there is no more work to be done that he accomplished it. And he chose this words to call back to the day before, to call back to Thursday, to call back to his long conversation with his disciples because he only uses this word telos three times in John. And here's the other two references. John 17.4 says, I brought glory to you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, praying to his father. He knows this telos is almost here and we're bringing it to the end. Jesus dies. It is finished for the glory of God that he and the father trust each other completely that this is the plan and we're bringing it to completion. There can be no doubt what Jesus died for. He died for you. And the second reference is this. It's John 13 once. The first thing he says before he washes their feet at the Last Supper this Thursday with Jesus. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. And he loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. Jesus ends his life by declaring, it's over. I've loved you all the way to my final breath, church. If you're wondering about the cross, it means He loves you. It means He trusts His Father and the plan of the cross is to bring you home. To forgive your sins, it is finished. And to bring you home to the love of God forevermore. Tetelestai is for you. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. The gospel is not Jesus did a lot and now I better do my part. The gospel is not Jesus and I work together to somehow sneak into heaven. The gospel is not Jesus is great and the more I'm like him, God will like me more. Those are not the gospels. There's no power in those gospels. The power of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, not because I have to pay him back, but who else would I live for? What else would there be to live for if I believe God became a man and died for me and then rose from the dead? Of course to all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed me white as snow. Church, you must believe and know from Jesus he promises that the work is done. Salvation is free, though it costs Jesus quite literally everything. Te teleastai gospel isn't about guilt. 
It's about love. It's about Jesus who says it's finished even before we say yes. That our work is what John 1935 said. It's to believe, which leads to the second promise that Jesus both says and does with his actions. Look with me at verse 25 to one of the most curious and beautiful moments you're going to find in the scriptures. So the soldiers did all these things, these horrible things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his, were his mom and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple and the disciple whom he loved, that's John the writer, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. They said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. At the cross, the only followers we have left of Jesus who've kind of hung on and stuck with Jesus are three women, three Marys. Mary is mom, Mary is aunt, and Mary Magdalene, longtime follower, cured of seven demons, the scripture tells us. And parents today get really creative with naming babies. Not so much back then. A lot of the same names. <laughs> Happens all the time. And the disciple here is the author, likely the youngest of all the disciples, the little brother, even to James of Zebedee in the 12. He's the little brother of the crew. And in Jesus' literal final moments, his next word will be tetelestai. Jesus' care has not run out. Jesus' thoughtfulness has not run dry. There's a giant mission before Jesus and his church to go unfold across the globe, yet the mission means absolutely nothing if it does not bring about actual love for real people. Just if Jesus died on the cross but did not love us, it would all be hollow and not matter. Love is what makes it matter. Love is what he has for his mom. Jesus is literally saving the world and not forgetting his mom. His mother, Mary, is likely Jesus' first, oldest, and most vulnerable follower. And he looks to John, someone who's definitely, most likely going to outlive her, and says, please take care of my mom, his youngest adult disciple. Please make sure this thing happens. Have her come live with you because she's a vulnerable person. And in Jesus' church, we're not letting any vulnerable people just be vulnerable to this horrible world. I want you to feel this promise, church, because this is a very real promise to you. Hopefully you get to live this long for this to be the case. But long after your hair turns gray, long after you can't do anything more for Jesus with the energy you used to, long over maybe your mind gets a little fuzzy, long after you move a little bit slower, when you enter the very twilight of your earthly life, you need to know that Jesus' love for you will not, cannot, never will change. It is Jesus holding on to you all the way to the end of your life, even if you can't remember his name. And when you die, you will step into the everlasting arms of a God who died wide this way to hug you the same way when you enter eternity. Jesus' care for you doesn't end. It's finished on the cross, and that's amazing. And it means that he cares for you all the days of your life.
Church, it's never about what you could do for Jesus, but only about what Jesus has done for you. And I realize that might be a new gospel to you. Many people have a gospel that like, yeah, Jesus did a lot and I better do my part. And that's just not true. It's Jesus. It is finished. And it's about what Jesus has done for you. And that's good news, church, to take all the way down. Jesus kept his bloody promises on the cross. Jesus keeps his promises now forevermore. And that's the beauty of a church, a people saved by Jesus and cared for by Jesus so we can commit to care about one another and tell people the good news of a gospel that can save you to the uttermost. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.